Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, the history and prehistory, if there is any, of war. Brian Ferguson, our guest, is a professor of anthropology at Rutgers University. He is an expert in the anthropology of war, including ethnic studies, tribal warfare, the impact of expanding states on indigenous war patterns, and the collapse of states. His 1995 book, Yanomani Warfare, A Political History Challenges Popular Assumptions About the Yanomami Tribe in the Amazon and has sparked debate within his field. Ferguson is director of the MA program in Peace and Conflict Studies at Rutgers University, Newark. Brian Ferguson, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. I'm glad to be here. Uh, glad to have you on. Glad you're doing all the writing you are on this topic. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I read, you know, popular, heavily promoted books by non-experts, non-anthropologists, such as Margaret McMillan's recent book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, uh, that push this idea that humans were always war makers. Uh, and they base this on skeletal injuries, on the behavior of aborigines in Australia, on the Yamamoto in Brazil. What does the evidence actually tell you? Well, I like to go to the evidence, and there are lots of statements out there about what the evidence shows. I think that in many cases, uh, it's you know kind of like my cousin Vinny, you know, that uh, once you start to take a look at it, the evidence isn't either as strong or can even go in the opposite direction than is claimed. I haven't read the uh, new book by Macmillan, but I did read the first pages uh, when she talks about uh, what you mentioned. The Anamami have been famous for quite a long time. They were originally known as the Fierce People in the book by Napoleon Chagnon, and they seem to be the case that showed what war was like in humanity's pristine past, what Stone Age life was like. Uh, so what I did was I did a historical investigation of the Yanomami and found that contrary to what everybody said, they weren't undisrupted at all. In fact, the ones that Chagnon was studying had extensive contact, which was clearly connected to the development of extensive violence among them. Um, there's lots of disease, there was uh, population movements, and there was competition over the things that became quickly necessary means of production, which were steel tools. So when people look at cases like the Yanomami, and Chagnon says it's for reproductive success and that it's sparked by um, men conflict over women, and I say it's something that's related to the uh, changing patterns of demography uh, of and of the distribution of these now necessities that the Yanomami have become dependent on, how do you decide? So my method in that book was to look at every single case of war that was reported for the Yanomami and evaluate them according to my theory and according to Chagnon's theory. And what you found when you looked at Chagnon's theory, most wars didn't have anything to do with conflicts over women, and there were lots of conflicts over women that didn't lead to wars. And that when you actually built a historical structure of uh when conflicting interests in access to these new necessities was brought about, you found those antagonisms did predict when war occurred. So it was a, a predictive theory that was borne out by the evidence. 
So that was one case. Um, there's, there's always more cases out there. I see that Macmillan uh, cites a couple that I'm pretty familiar with. Um, she talks about the uh, Australian Aboriginal people and the case of a man named William Buckley. Uh, William Buckley uh, seems to be the clincher case that Australian Aboriginal people uh, made intensive warfare before Europeans got there. Uh, the, the case really rests on him. There's a lot of debate about uh, these people. I'm going to be going into this in more detail. The, the book, I'm, when I get the chimpanzee book out, the next book is about the origin of gangsters in New York, so that's a, that's a different thing, but I'm well into that. And then comes a book about uh, hunter-gatherer peoples and historical situations. And so the research I've done on Australia uh, will come out in that. And Buckley... Uh, there's uh, this fantastic uh, book that came out, Buckley's story of his life. He was a, uh, a prisoner uh, who escaped uh, from the English and lived for something like 23 years among the people, um, the Aboriginal people, uh, where he uh, escaped. And he comes out with this long story of all these uh, wars that were going on. Now, Contemporaries didn't believe, some did and some didn't believe what Buckley was saying, because Buckley had a reputation of being a, uh, uh, an alcoholic and practically a mute who would never talk about uh, what happened to him uh, when he was with uh, the, the 23 years or so he's with the Aboriginal people. Um, so the guy who published the book uh, was credited as being the source of a lot of these ideas. However, uh, I found an earlier document before that book which indicates that there were a lot of wars that Buckley uh, witnessed. So I don't discount uh, what he says. So what does that mean? What it means is you've got to take a closer historical look at what was happening with the contact with Europeans in that area at the time Buckley escaped. And at the time Buckley escaped, all the people in the area where he was had already experienced smallpox, they had smallpox scars, uh, they were avid pursuers of anything the European search parties uh, had, any of the goods or tools. And where did it all that come from? It probably came from outposts of sealers and whalers who were uh, in the area long before any records were left, and we know what they did in, West, in Tasmania, and they caused tons of violence in Tasmania. So... That's the kind of historical perspective you have to bring in on these things. You can't just say, well, look how early it was. Uh, there was no uh, English settlement there, and so this is pre-contact, because the history, the history precedes the development of uh, settled posts and literate observers who write about it. That's what I look at. Um, and uh, the people who have argued that, and there's a lot of other people, uh, who argue that war is something that we find anywhere we look. I think that when you examine the evidence that's out there now, uh, it's the, the tide has really gone out on that position. There was an idea uh, that if you looked around the world at the archaeological record, uh, what we find in archaeology, uh, that 15 to 25 percent of a population uh, the skeletal remains, had indications of a violent death. And that was picked up by a lot of people. Uh, Lawrence Keeley was one of the people who uh, put out that idea. Um, uh, Bowles and Gintis uh, did, uh, economists put out uh, an article about that saying, 
that's how the human tension for cooperation evolved. And Steven Pinker picked it up and put it out, and a lot of other people have. So what I did was I uh, looked at their sources, the actual, I think it's 23, I may be off, cases that they cite as indicating, or 21, I think, indicating uh, high percentages of violent deaths. And what I found was really something quite amazing that, uh, well, first of all, in Steven Pinker's case, uh, he took sources that were cited by Bowles and Gintis and sources that were cited by Keeley, and he combined them into a list that added up to, I think it's 21. Um, but three or four of those cases were um, that he counted as different cases were the same cases, just with different labels in the different sources. So they were double counted. But when you look through the cases that were legitimate uh, single-counting cases, and you looked at the original sources that described them, what is routinely found is statements saying that this is a really exceptional level of violence that we don't see in other places. Not representative. So what was done is that they took some of the most violent cases, added them up in a list, and said, this is the way uh, humanity is in the archaeological record. And what I did instead was in several world areas, North America, Europe, the Near East, and other places, Japan, uh, looked at the total archaeological record. And basically, the total archaeological record is completely different. That you do find uh, cases of individual violence, which might be from war, uh, but it might be from personal fighting, which definitely happens. It might be from executions, which also happen. Um, but there's not plural numbers, there's not a lot of them, uh, and in lots of cases, there's none at all. Uh, and so the total archaeological record around the world doesn't support anything like this 15 to 25 percent. And I think that that's what people like uh, um, uh, Ian Morris, I think is his name, and Margaret McMillan may be going with those ideas, and they're just, they're just outdated. Um, what you see now, where the debate is going now in archaeology, is that people, it's turned a corner, that people aren't arguing 15 to 25 percent. What they don't find is, around the world, normally, uh, a 15 to 25 percent violent death rate. There are some cases like that, and there's some cases where it's even more than that. <clears throat> but mostly they find very low percentages. And over time the archaeological record, shows that you see gradually over time war appear in different areas at different times, very different times. And from then on, you do have a substantial number of people dying in war. So it looks like war has an origin. And what I say the debate has turned now is people aren't no, are no longer saying 15 to 25% of everybody died in uh, war. They're just saying, well, there might be war earlier than that in some places that we haven't been able to discover just because we don't have good evidence. And that's absolutely true. Uh, humans have always been capable of war, uh, as long as we've been human. And if circumstances provided for war at earlier times that we can't archaeologically recover, uh, there could be war. But in terms of the patterns of war that we see all around the world and indigenous people everywhere and lead up to the modern day of war, that pattern has uh, beginnings at different times around the world. 
And those times uh, are relatively quite recent in the history of the species, right? Right. And the history of the species, although it can be very old, I mean, some can be 13,000 years ago. Uh, so, uh, and there's a very good... Which is very recent. Be, in go ahead. The, go ahead. 13,000 years ago, precisely, is very recent in the history of the human species, correct? Yes. Um, but there's, there's not a whole lot of evidence when you go back to 20,000 years ago. So if it was there, you might not find it. What's more interesting is when you find places like, say, in the American Southwest, where you've got great archaeological records, uh, and you don't find any war uh, that you can uh, put your finger on until about... Well, roughly the year zero in the Christian chronology, um, so 2,000 years ago. And if it was there before that, we'd see it, we don't. Uh, or the ancient Near East, uh, which is you know, the area that's like from southern Syria to Israel and Jordan, very conflicted, obviously, who, through history. Great archaeology that goes from about 11,000 B.C. Uh, forward, and we don't see any war there until about 3200 B.C. So it's uh, quite a long time uh, of going without war uh, in that area. And the archaeology should show it if it's there. It doesn't. And then it does show it. And the interpretation, I think, that is the best one for the evidence is that war has started in those areas at those times. So if people have been cherry-picking the evidence and extrapolating from extreme cases as if they were the norm uh, and uh, making a case for humans or man, the warrior, uh, back uh, to the beginnings of the species uh, in violation of the available evidence, if they've been, you know, treating personal violence as war and violence from from animals preying on human beings as evidence of war and uh, and and so forth what is this simply uh, simply a well-intended error or or what has what is it a desire not to see European contact as the as the as the cause of, of war making what are what are the motivations uh, for this uh, distortion of the evidence? Let's, I, I, I find it difficult to speak to the motivations of other people, but I can say some, some trends in it, that there was, um, back in the early 20th century, there, uh, there was a lot of social Darwinist theory. And there was a life with struggle, the survival of the fittest and all of that. And that theory was common then. Um, times changed. It went, uh, uh, became less common for a while. Um, just bringing it closer to the present, a, a big push in seeing war as omnipresent in the past has been what used to be called uh, neo-Darwinian, but it's no longer neo. Uh, Darwinian theories that there was a, a continual struggle of uh, one human population against another, one human group against another. And this led to the selection for a whole bunch of uh, behavioral tendencies, uh, things like gender expectations and more. Um, that was, it was integral to sociobiology and evolutionary psychology. Uh, and that received a lot of attention. Uh, it was uh, 
back in the 90s, uh, sociobiology and evolutionary psychology were the raging things. Um, so a lot of theory came out of that. Now, not everybody, like Lawrence Keeley, uh, who was one of the people who wrote, the, he wrote a book called War Before Civilization, and he was not a sociobiologist at all. Uh, in fact, he and I agree on a whole lot of theoretical things. Keeley, I have to say, though, wrote his book uh, and had to hang it, and it was a very influential book. It had a tremendous impact in getting archaeologists to pay more attention to, work, to war, and, and that's great. It's been very productive. But in the process, he had to really overstate his case uh, by saying war was everywhere, uh, when what he was just trying to say was a lot of, in a lot of places, and also tried to say that anthropologists such as myself had uh, pacified the past, pretended that uh, war was only a result of states or, or European contact. And that, you know, I felt a little m more disappointed with, because it's never been my position, and the fact that he never provided any citation where I supposedly said those things did make me kind of suspect that he knew I didn't say those things. Um, this was something that was part of uh, making the book uh, more controversial than it was. Like I say, it was a book that has a lot to recommend it, but in those areas, um, I think it was kind of a, a sales pitch. There's also, as you noted briefly, been this case made that uh, human behavior is somehow determined by something it has in common with chimpanzee behavior. Uh, and mm -hmm. you you have a book uh, coming out soon on this topic, right? Right. Um, the book is, from my point of view, it's finished. Uh, we're, I'm waiting to hear from the press about it, and they're working on it. What, I, what I've done with in, uh, studying war among tribal people around the world, if I can back up a minute, is said that when when people it's not that there was no war before European contact in some places it might not have been but in most places there was by by 1500 AD there was war all around the world um, in places thousands of years earlier than that but European contact generally created a lot more war wherever it appeared and that was very often misunderstood as being the state of nature. So I was saying that uh, at, at the time, anthropologists were making, and this is in the 1970s and 80s, anthropologists were making a lot of theories about why wars happened, and they were taken completely out of history. So what I was arguing, and my colleague Neil Whitehead were arguing, is that you have to put these things in their historical circumstances to understand why the wars were really happening. And what I've done with chimpan chimpanzees is something similar to that. Um, uh, chimpanzees are, have been compared uh, through the work of Margaret Mead and through uh, Richard Wrangham and others. Not Margaret Mead, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a mistake. With, through Jane Goodall uh, and uh, Richard Wrangham and others have, have, have been said to practice something that looks a lot like human warfare. And in some cases, they do. Uh, and... So I don't disagree on that. Uh, what I disagree about is how common that is, and is it some kind of an evolved tendency? And what my book shows, and I, I'm trying not to talk too much about the book until it's actually out so people can challenge me on it, uh, 
is by looking at every single case uh, where this kind of homicidal behavior, a panicidal behavior, chimpanzee killing chimpanzee, occurs, uh, you can find that uh, competition has been increased by human impact or other kinds of human disruptions are at play. Yeah. So that's basically the idea. But when you go back to the question of, you know, say it is what they say it is, say chimpanzees do commonly uh, all over Africa in the wild do these warlike things, what does that mean for humans? And that's a really interesting question. Um, and I would say that even if it, if it did, even if they did, it wouldn't mean much, uh, and for two reasons. Um, one is that if you look at the uh, record in uh, uh, paleobiology, a physical evolution, and you look at the specimen known as Artipithecus, uh, Artipithecus seems to be, if, it, if not a direct ancestor of ours, then uh, close to that line, and earlier uh, in terms of well-described remains than anything else. And that doesn't seem to have any of the specializations we find in other animal species for a lot of violent behavior. So the assumption that the last common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans had these uh, violent tendencies doesn't seem to be uh, borne out in the hominid record. Right. I, I think the I think uh, Margaret Mead the the argument she did make as you know very well uh, was that war is a cultural invention. So not only would what chimpanzees have done have no determining uh, causational uh, impact on what humans do going forward, but what humans have done in the past uh, doesn't need to determine uh, what humans do going forward. Uh, we are free to choose to do whatever the heck we like, and and it seems to me that whenever someone does something good or noble or kind uh, or admirable, uh, including making peace, you never once hear anyone blame it on human nature. But whenever someone does something bad or indefensible by any other argument, by any rational argument, all of a sudden the phrase human nature gets thrown out. I think it's overwhelmingly used as an excuse. And I'm not sure anyone has ever defined what it would actually mean to discover what human nature was, other than a phrase that's used as an excuse. Am I, am I right in that? Right. I think Leslie Sponsell is an anthropologist who's, uh, he's for quite a long time been arguing that people need to pay more attention, not just to war, but to peace. Uh, and he's made arguments like that a lot uh, and uh, developed it very well. So was uh, another anthropologist, Douglas Fry. Uh, and uh, he studied uh, peace. Uh, so this is a, a more than me, because uh, I really am kind of died in the world studying war guy. Um, they have studied peace and uh, the uh, human nature aspects of it, and would would agree with you there. And there's other people. There's in in psychology. Uh, there's David Grossman, who uh, was a he's a military man himself, psychologist at at West Point. And he talks about how difficult it is to to make men uh, in combat actually kill other people, uh, that uh, they try not to do it. And there's a lot of evidence along those lines. It doesn't seem to be, if it was really human nature to want to do that, then it wouldn't need all the backup pressures to make sure that people do. Um, 
But to say that people are naturally cooperative uh, is uh, something that's gotten a lot more attention in evolutionary thinking. Um, it's, it's really very big in evolutionary thinking right now, uh, cooperation and altruism. Uh, and not even in a... Uh, sometimes people talk about altruism as being selfish, uh, that I help somebody else because they're going to help me. And what a lot of the work that's been done in lots of different areas of evolutionary theory these days is that we find altruism all over the place. It doesn't seem to have that selfish calculus or that underlying kinship connection so you're helping pass along related genes. Um, it's a big part of the evolutionary processes. But people's ideas of human nature are uh, really reflections of uh what they think is what they think about people today, and they think about something about people today, and then they go, "It's just human nature." For instance, um, everyone talking now—I've paid a lot of attention to this over the years because it's my area. The word "tribe" we're all tribal. Well, this has really been in the past four or five years. This has taken off. Uh, that it's just human nature. You know, we retreat to our tribes. This is bunk. Uh, the evidence for humans being tribal in the distant past is very weak. Uh, it's contradicted by lots of evidence that shows that people don't have tribal boundaries and people move from group to group, um, and they're not separated and segregated the way tribalism assumes. So these things are real today. Uh, people withdraw into their groups and won't listen to somebody else. And so they say, well, it's human nature. Well, it's not human nature. It's today. That's what people are doing today. But it's not what you see in the archaeological record. Brian Ferguson, we have just a couple of minutes left. When you come up to the current day and the war-making behaviors of various uh, populations on Earth, uh, it seems to me that in U.S. culture, people take whatever this 4% of humanity in the United States does and declare it to be human nature. Uh, even when 96% of humanity is represented by governments uh, investing radically less in making war, uh, many, many investing zero, most investing, you know, five, ten percent or much, much less than that in wars. Uh, many nations not waging wars for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, what, is, is there a problem of, of U.S. bias uh, in assuming that whatever this culture does uh, has some relationship to this mythical human nature? Well, I, you know, I don't know whether that's... Uh depends on using the idea of human nature or whether it's just, uh, you know, uh, national chauvinism, uh, that, you know, we're the best, we're the U.S. Um, the, I think a lot of other people around the world uh, would and have indicated their unhappiness with the United States' historic reliance on uh, making war. And I think that partly the fact, the idea that it's human nature is something that underlies acceptance of it within the United States. I don't know if it transfers outside of the United States. And you need to do that because there's another anthropologist I'll mention, uh, Catherine Lutz, uh, L-U-T-Z, who's got worked with the Costs of War Project at Brown University. And, and she and her colleagues have just shown how much war is costing the United States in in dollar terms and a lot of other terms. We've got 30 um, seconds. So, 
you want to make it seem like, hey, that's just human nature, rather than that's a choice uh, that leaders have made over time. Exactly. I could not agree more. Very well said. Our guest has been Brian Ferguson. He's a professor of anthropology at Rutgers University. Get his articles, get his books. We'll have some links up at talknationradio.org. Brian, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the opportunity. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.